horse fans and hello mystery fans and welcome to another episode of Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. My name's Lisa Williamson. And welcome to another episode of Horse Mysteries. And this week, dear, we have what is the uh, what is the uh, what is you know what I'm trying to say what is the title of this week's Operation Cowboy. Operation Cowboy sounds interesting, if not fascinating. But before we get to uh, what was it called, Operation Cowboy? Before we get to Operation Cowboy, we have to do horse bits. Okay. And this week, we have a listener request. Oh. Trevor wrote in. He wrote in via Facebook. And by the way, if you'd like to write in via Facebook, don't forget to go to the Horse Mysteries Facebook page. And you can uh, like it, follow us there, and find out when the new show drops. And uh, Lisa puts all kinds of interesting articles about uh, shows past and present. Is that not correct? That is correct. So Trevor wanted to know a, I would, let's say, I'll say a concise history of the introduction of horses to North America. Stumped again. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, that's not something I know a lot about. I know that horses were not like indigenous. Is that the right mm-hmm. word to this area? Yep. Um, and yeah, I think the general belief is that they came on ships from Europe, primarily. Uh, Most likely with the Spaniards. Yeah, Spaniards. Uh, and so there was a lot of horses that came in via the south, but there were also horses that came, like uh, nowadays they're in Canada, there's uh, Sable Island horses. Yes. So, yeah, anywhere on the east coast. I don't know that too many horses were introduced to the west coast, but they just kind of spread to the west. I think the uh, environment was maybe a little bit easier for them. Mm. Yeah. In the Central Plains area. I would say the Plains would be really yeah. ideal for them, mm-hmm. long for long wanderings. Yeah. So, that's as concise as I can make it. <laughs> <laughs> not very knowledgeable. Well, let's talk a bit, I guess, yeah, I guess it is sort of a, it's a pretty broad topic because you're looking at, you know, environmental elements, like, so the introduction of a, a new sort of invasive species. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about horses is they're not really that invasive. Like they, don't, they didn't really spread... They didn't seem to dis to uh, push out other other animals. No, I, I think you're right there. I think if you talk to any uh, BLM people, they totally disagree with you. So Bureau of Land Management. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, they're right now in North America. There are huge holding pens for horses that have been basically captured, uh, wild horses, because they say they're invasive and they're encroaching on grazing land and causing all sorts of problems for you know, the cattle industry. And so... Yeah, but the cattle is also invasive. Yeah, but cattle <laughs> they can make money from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's the, the, the bottom line is the most important thing. And so <laughs> they, there was a law passed at some point, I think like in 1972 or 74 or something like that, there's a law passed that the wild horses couldn't get rounded up and killed mm, anymore. Yeah. So that had been something that one of our past, this not past listeners, past uh, people in our, our story, like yeah. uh, the Jane brothers, that's, that's right, what yeah. they did. That's how they made their money yeah. originally. Um, and so they just sold horses for, for meat and then for whatever they could sell them for. Um, and then eventually got into the kind of uh, recreational horse riding <clears throat> as a, a sales Known as the wreck racket. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there are still places, like, what is that movie that we saw? Do you remember the name of it? Um, 
some movie and it was about these guys that broke horses and they worked in prisons. There's a, Oh yeah. Some Mustang. Was it called Mustang? Yes. Mustang. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of looked at that whole industry, how the horses are prisoners and then the people were prisoners. (laughs) But, um, yeah, yeah, I think, I believe that those horses, once they're captured, they just stay. Okay. uh, some people will adopt them, um, and so then you can kind of spring them from jail. But most of them, <laughs> once they are captured, they spend the rest of their time in these tiny little cells, essentially, little corrals. Okay. And uh, there have been a few incidences recently of uh, diseases sweeping through, hmm. like I think uh, equine herpes virus or the influenza, things like that. And so they've had um, some spikes in deaths because of that, but... Yeah, it's not it's not ideal for them. Wow. So, okay, well, that's different. Than, I mean, I, when I think about horses, it feels like they integrated themselves pretty well into what was nature. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about nature now. We're just talking about, you know, commercial mm-hmm. uh, agriculture. Uh, in this, this case, um, obviously, not dairy. It would just be like uh, meat, meat cattle, I suppose. Yeah, beef. Yeah, yeah beef. And then um, and the other thing would be like their effect on uh indigenous people who uh saw a good thing and took it up really quickly like mm-hmm. there wasn't much resistance to the idea of using horses no no that's true and yeah actually my class was just doing a big oral report on first nations people and yeah they talked about uh, some of the first nations groups especially again the ones in the prairies um adopting the horse as a mode of transportation over mm-hmm. what they had previously had, which was either walking or the travois with the dog pulling, yeah, the little yeah. s- not sled, but the sticks with stuff tied in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, horses, well, even in um, the rest of the world, like the, the um, civilizations that advanced the fastest were the ones that had horses. Yes. Because... It could move the people the fastest and furthest, and you'd get all those inventions and access to different things mm-hmm. and bring it back to your people. And, and so society advanced because of that. And, um, yeah, the First Nations people, there are many of them that, that use the horse. And even the uh, Nez Pierce Indians, which are in the kind of Idaho area, they even develop the Appaloosa breed. Okay. And they're very well known for that, very connected to it. And yeah. so no, well known as like actual horse breeders and mm-hmm. horse people. Yeah. So that's, you know, yeah, so there's different elements of it. So environmental, then, you know, social, sociological elements to it. So it, it is, it was a big change that uh you know the accidental escaping of horses from Mm -hmm. from whoever brought them here whether it was spanish or whoever you know the the fact is is that either they were stolen or they got away and and were and then introduced into the wild and and it's just kind of interesting i just find it interesting that like you know we can talk about like like what's interesting about say talking about first nations dogs those dog breeds don't exist anymore Mm-hmm. Because they weren't necessary anymore. They were get. They didn't need them for their wool. Right. They didn't need them for their pulling power. Mm-hmm. They had horses. They had. They could trade for for wool and blankets and stuff like that much more easily than making it themselves. And so, you know, it's gone. You know, and here we are talking about the Bureau of Land Management rounding up horses and and you know wild horses. The you know which are not obviously not native to to uh, North America, but have have a place in the mm-hmm. history of North America now. And, you know, obviously they're not, uh, 
<laughs> they're on their way out because now they're just an invasive species. No different than blackberries or uh, tansy ragwort or something yeah. like that, you know. Starlings. Yeah. They're starlings. Damn starlings. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hopefully this little discussion was uh, enlightening. Thank you for your question, your question, Trevor. Yes, thank you. And now, on with the show. This is it. <laughs> okay, so the setting is... What's it called again? Uh, it's called Operation Cowboy. So what do you guess it's going to be about? Oh, well, I think it's time for a medical one. So I think a cowboy is going to get an operation. <laughs> Medical mystery is next time. Oh, okay. One. Yeah, you're close though. Okay. You're close. Well, you're not close with your guess, but you're close with the fact that we have a medical mystery coming soon. Okay, I'm going to guess that it's a military operation involving the transportation of horses, and they needed a cowboy to do it. Maybe. <laughs> okay, so here, listen to this one. What the date is? April 1945. Huh. And the setting is a place called Hostile Czechoslovakia. Hmm. All right. Does that give you any more clues? Well, it's during the war. Yep. The the dog dog days of World War Two, mm-hmm. getting near the end here. When was um when was D Day? Was that November or was that earlier than that? I can't remember. Yeah, I, sh- I should know these things, but I don't. Uh yeah. So it's some sort sort getting near the end of the war. Czechoslovakia was under control of the Nazis at this point. Uh, but there there were lots of uh, Allied spies and and people working in in the uh, Balkans trying to. Uh, trying to help the rebels, the partisan soldiers and stuff. So I'm imagining that's what we're going to deal with here. Hopefully, oh my gosh, it's not going to be about the Cossacks, is it? Why do you say that? Because it's such a tragedy. <laughs> Can you get the Kleenex? So. One, of the, one of the great war crimes of World War II that no one ever talks about. Yeah. Because it was an Allied war crime. Kind of like Dresden. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about it. Where was it? Kurt Vonnegut on that one? <laughs> so here we go. Okay, so the, the incident, uh, basically, it takes place at the uh, 920-acre Imperial Military Horse Breeding Farm, located in the small village of Hostau, Czechoslovakia, which has a population of 1,200 people. Okay. So very small. At that time. At that time, yeah. It's probably more, it's probably up to about 1,300 people now. Yeah, it's still small. Um, it actually, now Prague has, it's right at the edge of the Prague airport. Oh, okay. Prague International. So okay. It's in, in that area anyway. So, but yeah, it's not quiet anymore. It might be small, but it's not quiet. Yeah. Because of the airport. Anyway, so the good news for this little town is that it has experienced very little disruption over the course of World War II. Basically, being an oasis situated in the Upper Palatine Forest foothills, mm. so it has enjoyed a more peaceful war than most places in Europe, which allowed the business of breeding top horses to carry on as usual. <laughs> Thank God. Yes. What would the Prussians do without them? Yeah. Right around on their steeds. But in the chaotic last days of World War II, the number of residents at the stud farm, horse and human alike, almost doubles in size as refugees flee across the countryside. Hmm. So Czech and Polish POWs now provide most of the labor at the farm. And recently, and then I, I found that he was called Prince sometimes and Duke sometimes. I okay. Don't know. But anyways, um, the Duke of Amasov had arrived from Poland with a group of Cossacks. They were described variously as Cossacks or Russian deserters, and they had with them a large herd of horses. They were looking for shelter, and they needed to be fed and have the horses tended to. Now, the Cossacks are, a lot of of them are white Russians, as they're called. Many, they were Mm anti-Soviet. 
That's probably why they were not yeah. in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Took advantage of this to get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. So the farm's vat, Dr. Rudolf Lessing, is already stretched thin between his duties on the farm, uh, administering to the animals in the surrounding community, and also dealing with the sick and starving animals that are passing through the town with their various refugee owners. Mm. So, very busy. Yeah. yeah. I remember reading a... This is told, I, don't, I remember reading this Anthony Burgess book, uh, Any Old Iron, and in the, it's one of those sort of like, uh, you know, oh, the kind of oh, grand overarching books that deal with lots of different times of, in European history, but part of it is during World War II, and there's part in, in the story after the war ends, and the POWs were released from their, the prison camps, there was no transportation back. Mm-hmm. They just had to like walk, walk yeah. across Europe, like from Eastern Europe all the way into Western Europe and mm-hmm. then to England. Yeah. It seems crazy. It does. And a lot of, a lot of them didn't make it, of course. Mm-hmm. Just sad, sad, of Very course. Very sad, yeah. Waited all that time. So, <laughs> yeah, so here we are. It says, the word is, as the war nears its end, the Russians are advancing and are just a two-day march away. It's only 60 miles out from the farm. Mm-hmm. So it's public knowledge that the hungry Russian troops recently slaughtered the entire herd of Lipizzaners at the Royal Hungarian Lipizzaner Stud during the liberation of Hungary back in February. Okay. So fear rises for the stud farm's equine inhabitants, many of whom were originally seized in 1943 from Vienna's Spanish Riding School and its breeding farm. The horses at that time had been transported to the farm as part of Hitler's vision to create the ultimate war horse. Altogether, 50 of the world's top Arabians, thoroughbreds, and Lipizzaners reside at the farm under the care of farm manager and decorated World War I Austro-Hungarian cavalry member, Lieutenant Colonel Hubert Rudofsky, and farm veterinarian Dr. Rudolf Lessing. So Lessing was a reluctant Nazi who had been made a captain. He had a great love for the horses, all of whom he lovingly referred to as his. So the two men are running low on hand grain and have limited access to skilled help. They have mares ready to foal and mares with newborn foals at foot. They are in a desperate place and are concerned about saving their horses' lives. So in mid-April of 1945, and some of these dates were, I would read in one place, it was this date, and other, it was this date, but whatever. Hmm. I just went with the majority. Okay. Um, so in mid-April of 1945, Luftwaffe intelligence officer, Lieutenant Colonel Walter Halters, who had been assigned to run a nearby meteorological station after being grounded because of fuel shortages, shows up at the stud farm with a request to review the facility and its inhabitants. Because the Luftwaffe technically no longer exists, Holters and his men are operating without old orders, but Holters has insider information that the war will definitely be over soon, and the Germans will not be the victors. Czechoslovakia will then fall under Russian rule. So Holters, a fellow horse lover, tells Rudofsky of the plight of the famous thoroughbred racehorse, Alchemist, who was recently shot to death by marauding Russian soldiers when the stallion refused to load onto a truck. Holters tells Rudofsky, I've spent time on the Eastern Front. The Russians care nothing for horses. They will slaughter them on the spot and fry them up as steaks to feed their hungry troops. You're in the greatest danger, and you must act now to save them. So not only was there concern for the welfare of the horses under the Russians, most of the Germans were also not keen to be taken prisoner by the Russians. (laughs) So Holters proposes a plan. Although he's not part of the farm staff, Holters outranks Rudofsky. Holters instructs Rudofsky to surrender the stables. 
Not content to sit and wait, Holters proposes that he will surrender himself to their enemy, the Americans, and try to enlist the Americans' help to save the horses from the advancing Russian troops. How did they plan to do it? (laughs) How did they? How did they? So Holters, as we said, was an intelligence officer, and he's already in possession of some important intelligence documents. He arranges to get some pictures of the farm's horses and makes his way toward the position of the advancing U.S. troops with all his top-secret paperwork. On April 16, 1945, near a hunting lodge near the border of Czechoslovakia, Holters, driving a German staff car flying a white flag, is pulled over by the Americans. He and his unit then officially surrender to the USA's 42nd Cavalry Reconnaissance Squadron of the 2nd Cavalry Group. He hands over his intelligence paperwork, which includes many pictures of the horses. A more fortuitous meeting couldn't have happened. The 2nd Cavalry Group, although at this time fully mechanized, was largely a group of horsemen who had previously served in mounted units. The 2nd Cavalry were famous among the German troops as the Ghost of Peyton's Army and went by the nickname Ghost Corps. (laughs) Well known for their bravery and daring exploits, exploits, General Walter... Walton Walker's XX Corps had advanced with unheard of speed across France during August and early September of 1944 and encountered heavy fighting through France and into Germany, namely at Metz, yeah, the Battle see, of the Bulge. I'm a ding-dong because I forgot that D-Day would have been in 44. Oh, okay, okay. That's why the Americans are in Europe, obviously. Oh, okay, good. So the spring of 1945 invasion of Germany, which was to include shortly the April 11th, 1945 liberation of Buchenwald concentration camp. Hmm. So at this time, Peyton's third army was leading the American advance into Bavaria with the intent to engage in combat with German Field Marshal Ferdinand Schroner's 7th army. The 7th army's 11th Panzer division was the largest and most efficient of German's remaining combat units. Why they were throwing them at the Americans and not at the, the Russians, is I don't understand. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre thing. I think there's something personal going on <laughs> and not uh, not tactical because uh, it's just weird that they they let the Russians just run rampant through through Eastern Europe. Well, I mean, obviously the Germans didn't care about Eastern Europeans. That was part of like the whole Nazi ideology is they're all, they were not people. But, you know, it, just, it seems weird that that whole area, not weird, I guess. I guess it just seems strange though mm-hmm. that they put up such a resistance and their their final like you know their last gasp big battle the battle of the bulge was you know basically to slow the allies from coming not just the americans but the allies from coming into germany but meanwhile their back door was uh, open you know but i guess uh like you said personal not tactical <laughs> I guess so yeah so Holter's surrender to the Americans was very civilized and resulted in Holter's and U.S. subfield commander Colonel Charles Reed taking breakfast together the next morning. So Colonel Reed was a former officer in the Mounted Cavalry and a superb horseman. He had early been chosen for an advanced equitation class and had spent his time prior to World War II alternately as an instructor at the USA's Cavalry School and as a member of the 1930-1931 U.S. Army Horse Show Team. So prior to 1945, the Olympics and similar international competitions were largely reserved for the military. So Reed was also a former polo buddy of General George S. S. Patton. So over coffee, the two men, Reed and Holters, looked at pictures of the stud farm's horses, 
and discussed their grave situation while awaiting the trucks that were coming to Holloway, Holter's seized intelligence documents. Reed comes up with a plan. So, plan A, which was Holter's. They're going to feed plan. the they're going to feed the intelligence documents to the horses. Mm-hmm. So then the horses have to get taken away in order to preserve the documents. Good idea. Yeah. Okay. So, we're going to jump back to the farm at the moment. So, the farm okay. and the horses. So the Imperial Stud at Hostel had been around since 1915 on land owned by the Duke of Trotzmendorf, and it was leased by the Czechoslovakian Ministry of Agriculture with its mission of being to breed top horses. But the <laughs> farm's breeding operation had gone dormant through the 1930s. In October of 1938, the Germans embarked on a mission to breed and train horses for war. Horses were central to the Nazi propaganda effort and Hitler was often described as the man who put Germany back in the saddle by embarking on the creation of a new super war horse, or Aryan horse. The breeding operations were re-established with an influx of some of Europe's top horses of other breeds, primarily Arabians and thoroughbreds. Hmm. I know this doesn't sound like a purebred horse to me. No. So in Hitler's invasion of Poland in 1939, part of the plan was to put into place for the rebuilding of Poland's horse breeding industry for the interest of the German nation. One of Germany's first acts in occupied countries such as Poland, Yugoslavia, Italy, and Austria was to take over important stud farms and riding schools such as the famed Janow Podlaski Stud Farm in Poland near the border with Russia. Hitler also set its sights on acquiring the regal white stallions of the Spanish Riding School in Vienna, home of the world's largest and most impressive collection of Lipizzaners. Sometime between 1938 and 1943, German soldiers seized the entire breeding herd of Lipizzaners from Vienna. (laughs) This included all the breeding stallions, as well as a large herd of mares. The seizure meant that almost all the horses of the Lipizzaner breed in the world, except for a few small isolated herds in other countries, were transferred to the Wehrmacht-controlled farm in Hostau, Czechoslovakia, <laughs> following Austria's annexation by the Germans. The uh, unspoken part of Anschluss, the removal exactly. uh, when Austria and Germany uh, combined oh, yeah. together. Uh, we didn't know that the Lipizzan stallions suffered. Mm-hmm. It was never in the commercials when I was a kid, when the, the Lipizzaners came to town. <laughs> Remember those? Yeah, I do. I went to see them once, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I never, we never did. No, I just always remember when uh, I was growing up, because my mom was British, and we would see people, like meet people who were German, yeah. but, or rather, people from the continent, and and they would say, oh yeah, we are Austrian. We'd always leave, and my mom would go, huh. Germans. <laughs> anyway. Suspicious. Yeah. She didn't, uh, she didn't she make the, they're different people though. They're different, cul- yes. different culture. No, I think she just thought they were fake and that they were Austrians. Anyway. <laughs> what did she know about it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that wasn't an Austrian accent. No. Okay. So to accomplish his plan for creating a super horse, Hitler had put Gustav Rau, uh, German's chief equerry or horse expert in charge of all horse breeding in the Third Reich. Rao's task was to create the perfect horse by utilizing the still poorly understood principles of genetic inheritance. That was a quote. <laughs> Rao had first conceived of the breed, or the idea of breeding a German super horse after attending the 1912 Olympics and viewing all the world's best horses lined up side by side. Rao decided to develop a German breed of military horse that was as clearly associated with Germany as the thoroughbred was with England. And so that was a quote from Rao. Okay. Rao could be described as a hard man, 
quick to spot weakness in both men and horses. But it's strange that it was a quirk of Nazi philosophy, so inhumane to humans, that animals were treated with the utmost care and kindness. That was another quote. However, outside of war, Germany has always been a horse-loving nation, and many of the world's top breeds and riders have since hailed from this country. So one of the three horse breeds that were central to Rao's plan in this project, the Lipizzaner, had been founded in the 16th century for the exclusive use of Austria's Habsburg royal family. <laughs> Known as the horses trained in Hohe Kohl, or heirs above the crown, the ground, the horses execute leaps, kicks, rears, and other maneuvers said to have been developed as aggressive battle tactics. What? This Kung Fu horses. Yeah. These highly trained movements are now considered the ultimate levels of classical dressage. So there was a thing I read that someone with a nowadays traveling Lipizzan show mm. was interviewed yeah. about Lipizzaners, and this person said, originally these horses were never allowed to be seen in public. They were only for the eyes of the king and queen or heads of state. Huh? So that was a quote. The how, concern how of all useless. In, pardon? How useless. Yeah. But many of those things where rich, rich people are. So the concern <laughs> of all involved, in particular with the Lipizzaners, was that if they were left in the hands of the Russians, the breed could be lost, or at the very least, extensive lineage would disappear forever, endangering the breed's status. <laughs> The military machine and the players and how some were played. Okay. Okay. So the Americans, late entrance to the war following the December 1941 bombing of Pearl Harbor, were largely fully mechanized at this point. The Germans, however, still used horses extensively in the transport of men and equipment. That's interesting. I the, did not know that. Yeah, the British Army was entirely mechanized. They didn't mm. use any animals in there. Yeah. They, well, they had a, a bit at the beginning, but um, yeah, not much. Yeah. So, uh, the Germans still use horses, yeah. So, horses were also used in their combat operations for the Germans as well. In <laughs> 1943, Germany had conscripted 800 veterinarians who were assigned to the care and management of between half a million and a million German horses that were used in the war effort. So, Dr. Lessing was one of those people. In November 1944, the 1st Cossack Cavalry Division, an elite mounted division of mainly Don Cossacks, was taken over by Himmler and the SS, then assimilated with the German fighting forces. <laughs> the Cossacks were placed under the leadership of Helmuth von Panwitz, a German noble and career military officer who spoke Russian. The Yalta Conference, also known as the Crimea Conference, was held in February of 1945. The heads of state of the UK, USA, and Russia met to make decisions about dividing up post-war Europe. One of the results of the Yalta Conference was that Czechoslovakia would ultimately fall under Soviet occupation. Ooh. Coinciding with the Yalta Conference, or as a result of it, in February of 1945, the 1st Cossack Cavalry Division, under the leadership of Helmuth von Panwitz, attempts to surrender to the British in Austria. Negotiations begin... Some Cossacks desert. By early April of 1945, General George S. Patton's U.S. Third Army is pushing fast across Europe toward Berlin. On April 12th, Eisenhower orders Patton to divert south. Eisenhower's plan is to let the Russians take Berlin. Patton is furious at what he considers a loss of a prestigious target. Meanwhile, Patton sends his reconnaissance squadron, the 2nd Cavalry, led by Colonel Charles Reed, to advance into Czechoslovakia as a way of protecting Patton's flank. 
By late April, Russian troops were said to be just 60 miles away from the Imperial stud at Hostel. <laughs> On the other side of Czechoslovakia were the Americans. 35 miles to the west, the Seven Corps of Patton's Third Army were now forming a defensive line southwest of the large city of Pilsen. Patton and his troops were in a race with the Soviets for the liberation of Prague, which would ultimately occur in early May. Meanwhile, Czechoslovakia is still occupied by the Germans, meaning that the route for the U.S. and Russian troops will take them directly into the path of the remaining brigades of the elite and fanatical Nazi SS combat unit. <laughs> One major complication was that the farm at Hostau, which had so far been largely untouched by war, was now in the geographic center of the impending battlefield should all these lines ultimately converge. Colonel Reed's 2nd Cavalry Unit, who had been spearheading the 3rd Army's advance, at 8 a.m. on April 26, along with the rest of Patton's 3rd Army, were ordered to cease fire and stand fast, with orders to wait at the Bavaria-Bohemia border until the Russians had occupied the Bohemian area. <laughs> jump back in time yeah because we're going to go through the whole rescue now from <laughs> the start all right okay so this is a timeline going back to march of 1945 yeah so the u.s army's lieutenant general walton h walker's xx i guess xx is that 20 i don't know i think i guess the 20th division or anything yeah, whatever I don't know. yeah or if you just say XX, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> XX Corps uh, captures the renowned Spanish Riding School of Vienna in its temporary quarters at St. Martin's, Austria, where it had been evacuated in January 1945 due to the bombing of Vienna. Walker then requests a performance of the school's white Lipizzaner stallions, especially for his mentor, the legendary General George S. Patton, a lifelong horse lover. Patton later described the performance as, and this is a quote, extremely interesting and magnificently performed, end quote, but added, quote, it struck me as rather strange that, in the midst of a world at war, some 20 young and middle-aged men in great physical condition had spent their entire time teaching a group of horses to wiggle their butts and raise their feet in connaissance with certain signals from the heels and reins, end quote. <laughs> He was a military man through and through. Oh, he was. Yeah. So when the performance was over, the head of the Spanish riding school, I'm going to get this guy's name wrong, and I've read it my whole life, but I've never okay. said it. Anyways, yeah. A-L-O-I-S. How would you say that name? Sorry? A-L-O-I-S. Alois? Alois. Oh, okay. Can I see? Oh, I don't know, because it looks like it's a Eastern European name, so yeah. I'm not too sure of the pronunciation. Sorry. Okay. Anyway. Um, I'll say his name wrong. I was pronouncing it as if he was French, but yeah. then his last name is not a French name. Yeah. Colonel Pojoski, who was himself the son of a cavalry officer and had been one of the youngest lieutenants in the Austro-Hungarian cavalry during World War I, halted his horse before Patton, removed his hat in a traditional salute, and made a request of the general. Pojoski, a bronze medalist in the 1936 Olympics, had already fought for the Lipizzaners under terrible conditions at the start of the war, then had lived side by side with the horses through chaos and gunfire when the Nazis insisted on keeping the Lipizzaners in Vienna during the 1944 Allied air raids. Although the horses were eventually evacuated to a safer place, as the war neared its end, Pajoski realized that in their current location, the horses were now in the greatest risk they had ever been. As a major in the Wehrmacht, 
Pajoski was intimately aware that the horses were in grave danger, and as a lifelong horseman, his greatest fear was for the horses' lives. Pajoski requested two things of General Patton. One, he asked for protection for the horses of the Spanish riding school during the uncertain post-war period. And then, two, he asked, went on to ask the Americans' help in immediately retrieving the Spanish riding school's breeding herd from Czechoslovakia. So confusing. It's called the Spanish riding school. I know. And I don't know why that is, but it is very confusing because people always think it's in Spain. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't blame them. It's no. called the Spanish riding school. <laughs> I think because they're like... Iberian-type horses, probably, which are Spanish-type horses, so maybe that's why. Okay. I should have looked that one up, too. (laughs) Anyway, so he uh, later wrote in his memoir, In a little Austrian village, in a decisive hour, two men faced each other, the one as triumphant conqueror in a war waged with such bitterness, the other as a member of a defeated nation. Hmm. That was him, obviously. Uh, (laughs) It was fortunate for the horses that so many people involved in this operation were true horsemen. General George S. Patton had spent his lifetime with horses. So after his graduation from West Point, he played polo, fox hunted, and competed in steeplechases while (laughs) stationed in Fort Myer, Virginia, the heart of America's horse country. (laughs) Yes. Patton had represented the USA in the 1912 Stockholm Olympics in the first modern pentathlon competition placing 6th out of 23 in the equestrian phase. As a major in the cavalry in 1921, he stated that a cavalry leader must have a passion, not simply a liking for horses. Later, Patton recalled his thoughts at the time. This is a quote. It is probably wrong to permit any highly developed art, no matter how fatuous, to perish from the earth. (laughs) And which arts are fatuous depends on the point of view. To me, the high schooling of horses is certainly more interesting than either painting or music, end quote. It was this attitude that allowed the incredible chain of events that happened next to proceed. So at around the same time in March 1945, at the Imperial Stud Farm in Hostau, Czechoslovakia, farm manager Lieutenant Colonel Rudovsky is in his office doing paperwork when a frantic groom shows up at his door asking him to come outside because the Russians are here. Surprised and alarmed, Rudovsky goes outside to see a group of Cossack deserters who've arrived with their horses and families. The group of 27 heavily armed men are being led by the young, handsome, blonde Prince or Duke Amasov. The Cossacks, an elite and privileged military class well known as superior horsemen, are mounted on their specialized breed of war horse from the North Caucasus, the Anglo-Kabarda. In addition to their riding horses, the men had with them a herd of 60 breeding mares, four stallions, 80 Anglo Don mares, and 30 Polish ponies. Quite a few of the men... And, and the partridge in a pear tree. Yeah, well, quite a few of the men, Prince Amasov being one, were accompanied by their families as well. So his wife and 14-year-old daughter were with him, too. <laughs> Prince Amasov politely yet forcefully demanded that his men and horses be given refuge at the stables. Rudovsky, very aware of declining hay and grain stores, refused... Recently, most of the stable's grooms had fled, so they were short of help as well. Amasov was politely and forcefully persistent, however, and although Rudovsky continued to refuse, ultimately the Cossacks and their mounts were allowed to stay. Altogether, their arrival added 178 new equines to be fed, cared for, and housed. Early April, three men, hidden in the edge of a forest near enemy lines here, halt, hand hawk, 
Arms up. Three frightened, starving POW escapees, two Brits and an American, come out of the forest, fully expecting to have been captured once again by the Germans. They are soon gladly surprised to learn they have stumbled on a group of Americans. They inform the Americans that they have just recently escaped from a POW camp, camp near the town of Hostow that is holding 300 POWs. Huh. So, April 20th, 1945. Three. Hitler's 56th birthday is celebrated <laughs> in the Sudetenland, where the Nazis now outnumber the locals at a ratio of 4 to 1. A celebratory parade features proud Lipizzaner stallions prancing down the street between the omnipresent swastikas. April 26, 1945. A German staff car flying a white flag is pulled over by U.S. soldiers near the Czechoslovakian border. The driver quietly surrenders. It is Lieutenant Colonel Walter Halters. Due to his rank, Halters is brought to the unit's commanding officer, Hank Reed. Halters promptly shares his information on the POWs and on the plight of the horses. Reed later recalled, We mutually agreed that these fine animals should not fall into communist hands and the prisoners should be rescued. Unaware that Patton already had a heads up on the plight of the horses, Reed sent a message to Patton at the 3rd Army Headquarters. Using a radio telephone, he called Patton to explain how time-sensitive the issue was. He requested permission for the operation and received Patton's swift response. Get them. Make it fast. You have a new mission. <laughs> However, if the risky mission went awry, Patton was clear that he would never take public responsibility for giving the order. Patton stated, If Reed acted on his decision to risk the lives of men to rescue horses, he was on his own. <laughs> He's kind of a jerk, that guy. Who, Patton? Yeah. Yeah, he was a... Uh... Well, it's just, he's a military grandstander. Is, I don't know if he's a grandstander. I think he was. I mean, I, I guess. I don't know. He's a good, he's a good general. Yeah. Good at his job. Yeah. Yep. Bad at public relations. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the operation will not be simple for many reasons. First, German troops at the Czech border were not part of the agreement and would likely oppose the American troops entering the area. Although the Germans in Czechoslovakia were being rapidly overpowered, there were still diehard Nazi snipers everywhere. Hmm. Additionally, most of the hundreds of horses were either pregnant or had newborn foals at foot. Finally, due to the recent Yalta conference, if the advancing Russian army reached the farm first, they would likely oppose the evacuation. Hmm. This is where things start to get fast. So late morning, April 26, 1945. The next step in the process involved Colonel Reed sending a German forestry employee to the farm with a top-secret message for Rudofsky from Halters. The letter contained information on starting the proceedings to transfer the horses to Bavaria. At 1.30 p.m. the same day, the letter arrived at the farm. The handwritten instructions from Halters were that an authorized officer from the stud farm was to leave the farm immediately and was to find and talk to Halters only. The specific instructions were for the men to meet in the office of the mayor of the village of Ploss in house number three. At the farm, Rodofsky read the message, and after some thought, he sent a note back stating that it would be impossible to move the horses, given the number of horses and manpower available. There is no record of this letter ever reaching the Americans, however. Kind of like the Romeo and Juliet thing. Anyway. <laughs> At 2 o'clock, so only half an hour later, April 26, 1945, the farm's vet, Dr. Lessing, leaves the farm riding a lipizzaner and ponying an Arabian. He is accompanied by a groom and follows a German forestry employee to the village of Ploss. After traveling for one and a half hours, they stop at a forestry lodge and receive information that halters will not be able to talk to them as he is already in the custody of the American forces. 
Lessing is at a crossroads, as he had direct orders to talk to no one but Holters. He decides to disobey these orders and sets out again after dark, following the German forestry officer to a spot near the border, which is close to a 2nd Cavalry 42nd Reconnaissance Squadron outpost. There the forestry officer leaves him, taking the horses back with him. So between 7 and 8 p.m. that same night, Dr. Lessing is spotted at the edge of the forest near a U.S. Army outpost. Two American soldiers with automatic weapons tell Dr. Lessing to put his hands up. Fortunately, Dr. Lessing speaks English and has the courage and conviction to stand his ground. It turns out that the Americans were expecting him. He is escorted approximately 1 or 15 miles via jeep to see Reed. Over dinner, Lessing presents Reed with a counter-proposal. Send an officer back with him to Hostau to confer with a local Wehrmacht commander to arrange a surrender. Captain Thomas M. Stewart, an intelligence officer with the 2nd Cavalry's Troop C, 42nd Reconnaissance Squadron, was out in the field when his commanding officer relayed a message. Colonel Reed wants to borrow you for a special assignment. Hmm. The 30-year-old captain and son of a U.S. senator from Tennessee reports to Reed's headquarters, a comfortable farmhouse. There he finds some American officers, including Reed and Captain Morgenthau, son of the Secretary of the Treasury, gathered in a direct conversation around Lessing. Reed had earlier conducted a telephone conversation with General Patton, where he was told he was on his own if anything went wrong. Dr. Lessing had already disobeyed direct orders and was no longer following the chain of command. He had just explained that those at the farm would not be able to transport the horses by themselves. Both sides had been forced into a position where they were making decisions with no official orders on either side. Hmm. An eloquent and impassioned Dr. Lessing pleaded for assistance from the U.S. Army to transfer the horses. He assured the Americans that there were next to no weapons present at the farm and promised that the transfer would be peaceful. Reed countered that he was under orders to not cross the border, as he was bound by the Yalta Agreement, giving the territory to the Russians. A shocked Dr. Lessing, who had been until this point unaware of the Yalta Agreement, (laughs) persisted with his request and was ultimately able to appeal to the Americans to put the horse's welfare first. Reed decided to ignore the Yalta Agreement and march on the farm in an attempt to beat the Russians to hostile. He appoints Stewart, a great rider, to accompany Dr. Lessing on the return trip to Hostow in order to orchestrate the release of both the horses and the prisoners. The two men first left on foot, then about a half a mile away, transferred to a motorcycle that had been hidden in some bushes. From there, the pair drove. Very some convenient. Miles. Yes. From there, the oh, pair. You meant they hid it there? Yeah, I think they had hidden it. Wasn't just randomly hidden? Okay. So, yeah, they drove some miles to the forester's house to pick up Lessing's horses. So, only two days before Hitler is to commit suicide in his Berlin bunker, Stuart finds himself riding behind enemy lines through the countryside at night in the company of an enemy officer. Reed had sent him off bearing a letter written in German and English, designating him as an emissary under Dr. Lessing's protection and granting him the authority to negotiate on behalf of the U.S. Army. Meanwhile, back at the stables, things had changed dramatically. Just minutes after Dr. Lessing had departed on his mission, the area's military overseer, General Schultz, had arrived with troops and were taken. he had taken control of the farm from Rudofsky. General Schultz gave orders to defend the farm and surrounding area around Hostau and was encouraging the local youth and the Volkssturm to violence as a way to protect the area. 
Rudovsky was concerned at what a dangerously self-destructive direction this was taking, especially in light of the proposed evacuation of the horses, which Schultz, of course, knew nothing about. Two hours after General Schultz had taken charge, he notices that certain key farm personnel are missing and starts to question where they are. His focus was namely on the two vets, Dr. Lessing and the Polish vet, Dr. Kroll. Rudovsky, meanwhile, is still under the impression that Dr. Lessing was, at that moment, meeting with halters at the mayor's office in Ploss. He is also completely unaware of the location of Dr. Kroll. He stalls and tells General Schultz the two vets are out working in the community. Over the next few hours, General Schultz gets more and more agitated and is constantly yelling at Rudovsky. <laughs> General Schultz then does some investigating of his own and learns that Lessing is now in Bavaria, something Rudovsky was unaware of as he was still under the impression Lessing was at the meeting with Holter in the mayor's office. Schultz then threatens to kill everyone at the farm. <laughs> Miles away, a few hours later, Dr. Lessing and Stewart were steadfastly making their way back to the farm. Their destination is 18 miles ahead through a dense forest. The pair had set off about midnight, but the forest was so thick through there, you felt like you were riding through two walls of darkness, Stuart recalled later. An experienced rider, Stuart was impressed with his horse, a Lipizzaner stallion who is said to have been the favorite mount of Peter II, King of Yugoslavia. The pair encountered a roadblock about three feet wide and three feet high, built of logs and branches, with a steep cliff on one side and a ravine on the other. Stuart's solution was to take off toward the obstacle. Too late, he heard Lessing who knew a route around the roadblock, call out, he doesn't jump! No matter, as Stuart recalled. It was the perfect jump. It was the highlight of the trip for me. <laughs> One tense moment happened just moments before arriving at the farm, when Stuart, who did not have proper riding equipment and had never ridden English before, came off his horse when it tripped in the dark going up a very steep hill. Fortunately, he was okay and remounted. But Lessing, who by this time was very exhausted himself, was extremely concerned for Stuart's well-being. So same day, but now just after midnight, or I guess it's the next day. Uh, Lessing and Stuart arrive at the farm. While Lessing had sold the Americans on the idea of saving the horses by assuring them safe passage to the farm, unfortunately, upon arrival, the pair learned all their plans had changed, literally overnight, with a takeover by General Schultz. Friend and fellow veterinarian Captain Wolfgang Kroll met the pair when they returned to Dr. Lessing's apartment. He sat cradling a submachine gun. We're in trouble, he told Lessing. When informed that a new general had taken over the farm, Lessing's amazed response was, What general? <laughs> Meanwhile, Lieutenant Colonel Hubert Radowski, who had initially given his blessing to the plan to evacuate the horses, was vacillating. Upon the arrival of a superior officer, General Schultz, Radowski, a Czech national, had decided he could cut a better deal with the Russians than with the Americans. He to had told Kroll that if he and Lessing brought in an American, Radowski would have the three of them shot as spies. Stewart, now basically a hostage, was hidden by Lessing in his apartment and spent the rest of the night crouched in a chair. Lessing went off to talk to Radowski. So, on the morning of April 27, 1945. A few hours later, Dr. Lessing summoned Stewart and Kroll. Rudovsky had left the farm to meet with General Schultz in town. Lessing decided to find one of Schultz's officers and have the three of them taken to see Schultz as well. Stuart understood a little German, so during the meeting he could make out some of what was being discussed. At first, it didn't look good. 
General Schultz sat behind a bare table, surrounded by officers, including, Stuart later learned, a silent Lieutenant Colonel Rudofsky. A staff colonel, a big blonde man, said something in anger to Lessing, and Lessing replied, Sir, I am no spy. I am a German officer. I am no spy. General Schultz gestured, and Stuart presented his credentials. Lessing explained their presence and told the general their primary responsibility was to the horses. Realizing that he had nothing to lose and willing to risk being tried for treason in the Third Reich, Lessing appealed to Schultz, implored him to realize that the war was over and the inevitable conclusion for the horses would be that the Russians would kill them. He read the group the letter from the Americans. This is a quote. The Americans wish to assist you in evacuating the horses safely back across the border to Bavaria. End quote. Lessing told them, it is our duty to save, to do everything to save them. And this is another quote. It is unimportant for us to win the war here at Hostau on April 27th or 28th, 1945. This we should have done four years ago. To do it now is too late. End quote. Stuart then heard someone in the background say, Adolf ist kaputt. The previously irate General Schultz suddenly became calm. He turned to Stuart and in English said, How many panzers can you bring? Stuart quickly realized that German didn't want to surrender to a lone American captain. He assured General Schultz that the 2nd Cavalry would arrive with many tanks and other vehicles. Lessing also informed the general that he had promised Colonel Reed that Stuart would be returned to the U.S. camp that day by noon. The general then made a phone call to his corps commander at the headquarters at the castle of Claudrau. His commander would not put it in writing, but over the phone gave Schultz verbal permission. This is a quote from Stuart. He said, he looked at me for what seemed like a long time, and then he took out his pad and scribbled something. It was a note of safe passage for Stuart. There will be no difficulties when your people come in, the general told him. So in the afternoon of April 27, 1945, a white bedsheet was hoisted up the flagpole at the farm, indicating surrender. On the evening of April 27th, 1945. They may have just put it up there to see who salutes. Oh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Or they just done the laundry. Uh, <laughs> Stuart set back toward his squadron, accompanied by Dr. Wolfgang Kroll. This was a quote. A man with an inclination to adventure and bravado. <laughs> so a German driver took Stuart and Dr. Kroll to the forest edge, but would go no further. The pair then walked the last half mile to Stuart's squadron. On arrival, Stuart briefed Reed via radio of the day's event, and Reed put their plans into action. Dr. Kroll wanted to be part of the American advance on the farm and stayed in the jeep. So morning the next day, a few hours later at daybreak, a task force was quickly created from the limited number of available troops. Two small cavalry reconnaissance troops were traveling in machine gun armed jeeps with M8 scout cars, some M8 howitzer motor carriages, two M24 Chaffee light tanks, and an infantry force of 325 men who were to be commanded by Major Robert P. Andrews. Another approximately 70 men from the 47th Reconnaissance Group A Troop, along with two light tanks and two assault guns, was on its way. So the track they were to take was 20 miles long into still German-occupied territory with thousands of German troops, including two understrength armored divisions. Among them was the 11th Panzer Division that a few days later would surrender at Passau. After passing German defenses at the border, the group fought their way forward village by village. The 7th Corps had opened with an artillery barrage 
that blasted a hole in the German forward defenses and then encountered only one significant firefight along the way before Major Andrews and crew arrived at the farm. As General Schultz had promised, the task force encountered no resistance at the stud farm and the surrender to the USA's Lieutenant Colonel Donald Quinlivan was peaceful. The capture of Hostau resembled a fiesta, Reed wrote in his report on the operation. As soon as the facility was secured, the American troops hurried off to look at their primary reason for being there, the treasure trove of horses. (laughs) Among them were about 375 Lipizzaner horses from breeding farms across Europe, primarily the Yugoslavian Royal Stud and the Piper Stud in Austria, which supplied the horses for the Spanish Riding School, along with more than 100 of the best Arabian horses in Europe, about 200 top thoroughbred racehorses, some trotters, and 600 Cossack breeding horses. <laughs> so April 3rd, no, April 30th. That's rather, a lot of horses, by the way. It is a lot, yeah. It's yeah. one of those things that when you look at a map of, of Europe, it doesn't feel like there's anywhere you could have horses. Mm-hmm. And then you go there and there's like tons of farmland. You're like, oh, how can they <laughs> fit How can they fit this in? That's what I felt like in Belgium when I went there. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's so tiny, like it looks so tiny in the map. And then you're there and you're driving between two cities and there's all this countryside and there's horses mm-hmm. and stuff. And you're just like, I don't, how come, how come they can have farms? Well, they it's don't weird. have urban sprawl like we do. I guess part, partly that and they probably have more arable, arable land than we have as well because they don't have mountains, mountains the way we do. Mm-hmm. We're very, we're very choked in We here. are very limited here. Yes, for sure. Okay. So April 30th, it was cold and there was snow on the ground. While the rest of the 2nd Cavalry Group prepared for an advance toward Pilsen, the task force organized a small army to defend the farm in the event of a counterattack. In addition to the Americans, with their tanks and assault guns, there was Dr. Lessing, Dr. Kroll, and the other resident Germans from the Wehrmacht, the Cossack cavalrymen, and an assortment of now-former POWs from the UK, New Zealand, France, Poland, and Serbia, who had chosen to stay on. (laughs) Unfortunately, once the farm was secure a troop of German soldiers showed up. The resident Germans took a pledge to defend the farm from the hostile German forces and then were rearmed by the Americans. For five hours, the small international force that was jokingly referred to as Stuart's Foreign Legion (laughs) held off an attack from the fanatical German troops who were mostly older men and boys. The farm was attacked twice by this Waffen-SS infantry, who were eventually repelled with heavy losses, including 100 Germans dead and another 100 injured. The defenders took hundreds of German prisoners. The rest of the German SS unit retreated back into the woods. The Germans did a lot of shooting, but not a lot of damage, Stuart remembered. Two men of A Troop ultimately lost their lives during the mission in isolated incidents elsewhere, however. So also on this same day... Hitler commits suicide midday. Did he? Well, that's what dun, they said. Dun, dun. That's the big mystery. May 1st, 1945. Germany gains awareness of Hitler's suicide after it is announced on German radio. Colonel Reed arrives at the farm to inspect the horses. Before leaving, he cautions Stuart that the German 11th Panzer Division would soon be headed in their direction. Don't engage them, he warned. May 4th, 1945. The massive German 11th Panzer Division and more than 9,000 men surrender, an event Reed had been instrumental in negotiating. Two days later, the USA's 3rd Army liberated Pilsen. Reed, who shared Patton's antipathy toward the Russians, established new headquarters at an estate near Pilsen. 
He was determined to hold his ground in Czechoslovakia until the U.S. Army, not the Russians or Czechs, told him to leave. <laughs> May 7th, Germany surrenders. May 9th, Reed receives word from 3rd Army Headquarters that General Patton has been in touch with the Spanish Riding School's director, Colonel Pajoski. Pajoski would be flown to Reed's headquarters to inspect the captured Lipizzaners. Interestingly, this news was not well met by some, as Pajoski and Rudofsky had a long-standing dislike of each other, thought to be the result of Rudofsky's feeling that Pujoski was long-distance micromanaging his care of the horses. <laughs> Next came the plan to evacuate the horses. Reed knew something had to be done to get the horses out of the path of the Red Army soon. Since the horses outnumbered the men in the task force, Andrews enrolled Allied POWs, British, New Zealanders, French, Poles, and Serbs recently freed from concentration camps in the area, or POW camps. Furthermore, he gave arms to the present German soldiers of the Heer and Luftwaffe, and even if they were formerly, formerly, prison, pr formerly prisoners of war. Finally, he accepted the help of the Russian anti-communist Prince Amasov and his Cossack cavalry officers. The Cossacks offered to help came at a high price. They had to leave their own horses behind. And sadly, these horses did ultimately come, become food for the Russian army. Huh. A day or so after the German surrender, it became evident to me that the Czech and Russian communists were showing a great deal of interest in the captured horses, Reed recalled. Word was that the communists had already made several undercover trips to the stud farm. He transmitted this information to Patton's headquarters, along with the recommendation that the Arabs and Lipizzaners be transferred as soon as possible to a large facility in Mansbach in central Germany. The Third Army swiftly gave its assent, along with a guarantee to give the movement of the horses priority along the required roads. Now the reality of evacuating the horses is on Andrews. After arriving at the farm, Colonel Reed looked for vehicles to move the pregnant horses and newborn foals, but had little luck. Meanwhile, Major Andrews turned over the task force to his deputy, Captain Stewart. So on the morning of May 12th, at dawn, a lone forward outrider in the form of a Russian advance guard tank arrived, just as a hostile contingent was readying to leave the farm. Fortunately, the Soviet T-34 was no match for the assembled international forces, and after a brief standoff, the Russians allowed the group to leave. Well, T-34s, you know they're still using T-34s in Ukraine? Oh my goodness. Yeah, World War II era tanks. Oh, <laughs> they've, they've taken out of mothballs and wow. using them there. That's crazy. Yeah, it is Desperate. very crazy. Yeah. Very, <laughs> yes, the end. Yeah. Okay, so the procession then began with about 350 horses being led, ridden, and herded in small groups along 35 miles of enemy territory. The procession was led with American MP Jeeps. Next came the trucks, hauling the mares in full, or with new foals at foot. Then came the remainder of the horses, some of whom were ridden, while others were herded. A band of Polish, Czech, and Cossack horsemen were used as outriders, along with a smattering of Americans in armored vehicles flanking the group, protecting all from dissident partisans, refugees, concentration camp guards, and SS troops, making the name of the mission, Operation Cowboy, especially apt. Their first stop was Kotzitz, Germany. The convoy completed their mission just before the first Soviet T-34 came in sight. <laughs> the Soviets avoided any confrontation, and the operation was concluded once all the horses were loaded onto trucks near the border and secured behind enemy lines, or American lines. Despite the chaos of wartime, the evacuation was an organizational masterpiece. <laughs> 
The Americans had closed off all major intersections and the rest of the two-mile-long convoy, including the Arabians and thoroughbreds, along with some soldiers, covered the roughly 130 miles to Monsbach safely in a matter of days. The fastest group made the journey in two days. The slower groups, those that included mares and foals, arrived a day later. Morning of May 14th. At the junction of the Firth and the Wald River, the advance unit reached the border where they were halted by a barrier across the border crossing. Three ragged armed guards with red communist armbands bearing German rifles and Soviet machine guns demanded that the horses be returned. A U.S. M8 armored car came through the trees and pointed its 37mm gun at the guards. The gate was promptly opened and the horses were allowed to proceed. Once the last horse was through, the M8 armored car followed. When the armored car had cleared the gate by 30 meters, it turned its gun on the gates, the guard's gatehouse and blew the roof off the structure as a final farewell. <laughs> the horses were then all taken to the town of Monsbach. So it should also be noted that Lieutenant Colonel Rudovsky, in a sort of CYA move, had also materialized at the border <laughs> crossing with a clipboard. And as the horses passed, he marked off each departing animal on his list. (laughs) Czech and Russian officials later filed a protest about the horses being seized by the Americans, but nothing ever came of it. So on the afternoon... The the list had been carefully checked off. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So on the afternoon of the same day, May 14th, uh, at about the same time, the U.S. Army flew Pajoski to Colonel Reed's headquarters. He was introduced to Reed over dinner. Our conversation soon showed how full life is of interesting coincidences, Pujoski recalled. Reed, as it turns out, knew Pujoski's name well. When the captain of the U.S. Army riding team, of which Reed was a member, saw Pujoski ride in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, he was so impressed he named one of the cavalry school horses after him. So, on the morning of May 15th, so the next day, the next morning Reed drove his Austrian counterpart to Monsbach in a jeep. Pajoski easily identified the Lipizzaners belonging to the Austrian herd. Before I flew off, I tried to thank Colonel Reed for his help and great understanding, the Austrian horseman said. I have only acted as a fellow rider should, Reed replied, and I am convinced that you would have done the same if the positions were reversed. Hmm. On May 25th, it's the it's, sorry, I interrupted. It's sort of it's sort of interesting, like this sort of multi. It's not multinational, but also like opposing sides coming together over this one mm-hmm. this thing yeah. and and just the and especially when you know this like this is like the, near the end of the war like obviously hitler's killed himself but there's still like fanatics in fact it's probably even worse like the behavior is even worse now because mm-hmm. there's no breaks that's right you know and so no everything's no laws no yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the fact that they were able to cooperate with each other in a very gentlemanly way in an almost old-fashioned way kind of like something like you know something as as odd as like the Christmas soccer game during World War Two, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but also that they're able to do it so effectively because this, you know, like it's one thing just to talk about like the logistics of it, but it's, you have to realize that like there's still like bombers flying overhead. There's still like you know they're seeing to get around. Yeah, rubble, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Like all everything's all torn up. The roads are hardly working, and there's no like there's probably no good roads anyway. Like mm-hmm. this is pre this is pre World War Two. 
Well, re- not pre-World War II. It's, I should yeah. say, it's pre the end of World War II, yeah. so no one's thinking in terms of motorways and stuff like that mm-hmm. at this time. Mm-hmm. So it's all, everything's all uh, country, sm- roads, country yeah. roads, you're winding, winding your way through, yeah. and and it's all just a big mess, and there's, there's you know, there's partisans, and there's, you know, different stripes, you know, you have, like, uh, socialists now uprising, communists, uh, you know, Nazis still running around, mm-hmm. plus you have Americans. Desperate, hungry people Desperate, hungry well. people, you have Americans, you have the Soviets. You know, it's just crazy. Yeah. But somehow. It is crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, kudos to them for making it happen, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, May 25th, uh, Reed honored his word. Many of the horses were loaded in Monsbach, and hours later, around midnight on May 25th, 60 trucks arrived at an abandoned airfield outside St. Martin. Since this leg of the journey was too great a distance to make on foot, Reed had procured many captured German vehicles and outfitted them to carry the horses. (laughs) Unfortunately, two mares were injured in the chaos of unloading at the airfield and had to be put down. But a total of 244 Lipizzaners were successfully returned to St. Martin's, Austria. Pojowski then sorted them, keeping those belonging to the Spanish Riding School and repatriating the rest to their rightful owners. But there was a cost. So Patton had his critics even on his own side. The idea of sending U.S. soldiers to save a herd of horses had some objecting to what they saw as yet another perceived egotistical eccentricity on General Patton's part. The death toll on the Allied side was two American soldiers who lost their lives, two Lipizzaner mares who died in transit, and all the Cossack horses that the Cossacks had evacuated at great risk from Poland, who had been then left behind to die. Sadly, all the Cossacks who volunteered to help move the horses after fleeing the Red Army made two major sacrifices, the first being to leave their own horses behind as they assisted in the removal of the Lipizzaners, which meant that ultimately their own horses were killed by the Russians. Even worse, after valiantly fighting side by side with the Americans to defend the Imperial Stud and then volunteering to transport the horses to Germany, Ultimately, under the terms of the Yalta Agreement, the Cossacks were arrested by the Allies, who then promised them that they were being sent to the West. Instead, the Cossacks were all repatriated, which saw their leaders either shot or hanged, including von Ponwitz, while the soldiers were sent to the Gulag camps. Yeah. Saving the Lipizzaner. A major betrayal. Yeah. So, it made me cry. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is a huge, yeah, just the, I mean, you know, it's just that one of the unfortunate elements of the war is that, you know, instead of, I mean, Germany became, instead of being what was once the flower of Europe, like this, the the great nation, this, like, like a great industrial nation, you know, a place where the universities were some of the greatest in the world, you know, their medical schools, everything was great there. It just became this barbaric, barbaric nation. It became like this murderous, just a mess, right? And so it forced the allies to deal with a nation that was also a barbaric nation, the Soviet Union, which was murdering people. It was just a giant murder factory through all these years. And... And so they're having to, they're having to, uh, you know, basically kiss, kiss Stalin's in order to keep, keep the Soviets on side. So they have, a, you know, the second front open because there's just no way that the allies could have, uh, beat the, beat the German, like got into Europe and beat the Germans without the, without the Soviets drawing, uh, the, the German army, you know, creating a second front. Right. So yes, 
So, you know, we sacrifice, not only we sacrifice the Cossacks, we sacrifice the Poles, the Czechs, you know, all, everyone, all the, the Balkans, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the Ukraine, all of those were sacrificed in order to, to uh, uh, keep Jeez, Stalin on, yeah. on, on side. So, uh, yeah, it's not just, not just the Cossacks, but uh, that, is a, that is a tragedy. It's one that could have been avoided, because all you have to say is, the war is over, F you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, well, too bad, so sad. You know, what are we going to do? But they still needed to have cooperation, because there's other places where the, the Russians and the, and the Allies had to cooperate with each other, because they were basically dividing all this territory. Like, cities were divided between them, right? Like, Berlin was divided between the Allies and, and the Russians, even though it was deep in Russian territory that the Russians wouldn't, wouldn't cede back to Germany. Yeah, it's, uh, anyway. I have feelings about this. <laughs> well, that's good. Let them out. <laughs> so, yeah, it said saving the Lipizzaner stock was a brave feat that had no legal or historic precedent. This is only one of two known incidents during World War II where Americans and Germans of the Wehrmacht fought side by side against the Waffen SS, <laughs> the other being during the Battle of Castle Eiter. So it should be no- acknowledged that a simple fondness for horses can't explain the many instance- instances of risk, bravery, and personal sacrifice that arose during the plan's execution. No, because it was more like a friendship between these people mm-hmm. who all had like this commonality. Yeah. The horses were like the part of this, but their personalities and stuff like that obviously made them... <sighs> and in, in a way, it's weird because you know when, when you're talking about earlier where the, the, the German surrendered in this very gentlemanly soldierly way and i was thinking to myself it's so interesting because the americans who are taking this you know they're like oh this is a soldier you know this great german soldier you know like you know this this honorable army blah 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 and in the meantime they're just murdering people like crazy in the concentration camps Mm -hmm. but no one knows this is going on or at least they suspect it but they don't know for sure and so they're kind of like taking people at face value Mm -hmm. and not but it's just so weird right like the the and then like obviously the there are lots of Germans, German officers and stuff like that who are opposed to all that stuff, just thought it was just an insane waste of resources. You talk about moving Lipizzan stallions being a waste of time, <laughs> you know, to, to military mind. But, uh, like, uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's just so weird, like, you know, like this working together when you just know, like, behind it all is this, like, just absolute black, you know, dark, this, the darkest, darkest of the dark darkest souls of what's going on mm-hmm. in the, you know, and it's just like, it, it's just weird, but uh, I guess you can't paint everyone with the same brush, so, no. you know. Yes. So, here's a, another quote. So it said, it should be acknowledged that a simple fondness for horses can't explain the many incidents of risk, bravery, and personal sacrifice that arose during the plan's execution. Decades later, a Lipizzaner fan stated, all over Europe, there were men whose express job was to protect cultural artifacts and recover stolen art. But the horses, equally beloved, equally treasured, infinitely precious because they were living things, did not have the same official protection afforded to museum pieces. <laughs> Upon arriving safely across the border, most of the horses stayed in Man's back for the summer. The American soldiers were successful in freeing over 300 American POWs and 300 Allied prisoners from many nations while liberating the Czech town of Bella and Houston. Several hundred Polish grooms and 670 horses were also liberated from Hostow. 
After the communist coup in Czechoslovakia in 1948, the American operation that liberated the horses and the towns eventually faded from memory until recent decades. In 2019, the two towns held a celebration to honor the American troops Hmm. after dedicating a memorial for the two U.S. soldiers who died in the fighting. In total, 244 Lipizzaners returned to Austria. This ensured the bloodlines of the Lipizzaner horse for future generations. In a gesture of appreciation from Colonel Pajoski, performances were staged for American soldiers stationed in occupied Austria over the next few months after the end of the war. A second performance for Patton happened on August 21, 1945, and several more for one or 2,000 American GIs at, at a time. Pajoski said, The success of the Lipizzaner with the American Army General was repeated also with the ordinary soldiers. They were all captivated. Additionally, Pajoski offered Colonel Fred Hamilton, chief of the Army Remount, the choice of 200 horses valued at $1 million to take back to the USA. This included three Lipizzaner stallions and six mares. Upon the commencement of the war, the horses were considered a lawful war prize, and as such were officially the property of the U.S. government. The U.S. military decided in the interest of the horses' safeties that they be shipped to the United States as food was in short supply around Europe in the immediate post-war period. <laughs> Concerns about the horses being adequately fed and also about the horses not ending up as dinner for hungry people trying to survive on the war-ravaged continent were expressed. Ultimately, most of the 30 Arabians and all the thoroughbreds went to the USA. Consequently, in the fall of 1945, American troops loaded 151 stallions, mares, and foals onto the Stephen F. Austin, a ship docked at the German port of Bremerhaven. After hitting a winter storm, in which the boat almost capsized, 152 horses arrived at Newport News, Virginia, nearly a month after departing from Europe. <laughs> the horses went to the military's Pomona Remount Wait, Depot. so how many were on the ship to begin well, with? Well, they, they had a foal. As they went. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so they went to the military's Pomona Remount Depot in California. Several years later, the Department of Agriculture disbanded the remount, and the horses were redistributed to private owners. Whitez II, one of the Polish Arabs, went on to become one of the most influential Arabian stallions in the U.S. <laughs> and was sold at auction in 1949 to a breeder for $8,100. He would go on to sire 133 foals. He's a horse I heard of when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's quite famous. Huh. The Lipizzaners that remained in Europe went to Germany until 1955 and then were able to return to Vienna after the withdrawal of the Soviets. The end of World War II meant that the career soldier General George S. Patton, a man who lived to fight, was left without a war. <laughs> Peace is going to be hell on me, he had complained to his wife, Beatrice. <laughs> hell Four- on me too, Beatrice said. <laughs> yeah. Four days later, in December of 1945, he was involved in a minor car accident, which resulted in a broken neck that left him paralyzed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Patton asked his doctor one question. What chance have I to ride a horse again? <laughs> you know, Patton wanted to uh, keep on going. Mm-hmm. Uh, after before that before the war ended he was he recommended that they just keep marching through into 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 Russia yeah i read that which they're, uh they're like whoa nelly <laughs> <laughs> well i mean yeah cuz no one i mean it's one thing to like 
you know, you've geared up, you're fighting the Germans, you've created this this menace, the Nazis, blah, 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 which we still have today. We still have the Nazi menace. It'll never end. You know, we'll always have Nazis. Yeah, we'll sure. always have Nazis. Whenever we need movie villains, we'll always have Nazis. No one has, no, no other, no other group has ever, like, no one, no one, no other group. Like, you can put the communists in or whatever. No one cares. Nazis, they're the best. But anyway, the, uh, you know, they've done all this, you know, and then they finally defeat Germany and, you know, it's time for peace and it's, you know, victory over Europe and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this guy, all right, let's just keep on going now. We're going to go into Russia. We're going to conquer them too. No, no one has. I mean, people, people have been collecting tinfoil for the last four years. Mm-hmm. No one wants to like ration anymore. Everyone wants some fun now. Like it's over. Like you want to go home, see their wives. Yeah, not him. I read some things about how he was very abusive to people who had been injured and things. There's a couple of incidents like that, but I don't think it was like a common thing, but there were times. I think it wasn't like injury. It was more to do with people who had PTSD. Yeah. yeah. And he didn't understand like, like he just didn't, didn't get it. He just didn't, didn't understand it. But I don't think he was alone in that though. I think most, most, most of our treatment of people (laughs) who had PTSD at that time to now, like it's very, very recent that we've, discover what ptsd is mm-hmm. you know like the, the last like 50 years of treatment of of soldiers has been really inadequate because we're trying to deal with the symptoms not with the cause you know right you know and so everyone's like oh they got this they have that the uranium uranium depleted bullets agent orange all these things that have caused all these problems and you're like no 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 like People's hair isn't falling out because of Agent Orange. They're falling out because they're still stressing out about the fact that they were almost killed every day of their life for two years in in another country. You know, like that's what's that's what's causing these problems. So yeah, it's just, it's interesting. Like we finally like understand it, mm-hmm. but then it was like no one understood it. I mean, the whole point of like you know, if you got sent to a sanitarium as a soldier had shell shock, whether World War One or World War Two, the goal wasn't like to help you get over it the goal is to get you back out into yeah. the into the field again and fight start fighting again so there yeah it's just there's just no uh there's no sympathy for no for soldiers it it was sad so yeah, after his accident uh he didn't want people to see him like mm, that yeah and it said his wife who is one of the few people allowed to see him prior to his death reported that he said this is a hell of a way to die <laughs> So he passed on December 21st, 1945. Wow. Mm-hmm. Didn't last too long after the war. I, I mean, I guess I guess that's good because he probably would have been like, involved in some sort of coup against the government <laughs> in the United States or something, you know. Like, yeah. So it's probably good that he, you know, he would have been like one of the guys behind the Manchurian candidate or something, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So Colonel Reed, who was a graduate of West Point and a career soldier who eventually retired from the Army, uh, he purchased the offspring of one of the horses he had rescued <laughs> and rode her every day for nearly 30 years. Wow. He died on April 8, 1980, of a stroke at age 79. <laughs> Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Hubert Rudofsky, who was never a member of the Nazi Party, was never made a prisoner of war. He did not get along with Pajowski as he felt he was a micromanager and did not support the rescue once it got underway, as he was said to be loyal to his Czech roots. <laughs> At the end of the war, he took off his uniform and returned to a life with horses. <laughs> General Schultz was a much devoted, devoted no, much decorated military leader, and he died in 1966. And it was always said that he knew nothing, <laughs> nothing. Gustav Rau was a... Uh, 
largely apolitical figure who was more of an opportunist as far as his job with the Nazi party went. He was well thought of by those he worked with directly in Poland during the war. After the war, he focused on turning Germany into a world-dominating nation in the area of sport horse breeding. <laughs> he was instrumental in the development... I don't know if that's how you want to use the language you want to use about German things. No. So he was I'm going to turn Germany into a world-dominating force. Well, they were, though. Like, <laughs> I'm sure they were. Yeah, German... You just want to keep it on the down low, guys. Like... Yeah, they won everything in show jumping and dressage, so... Yeah. Your attempts at world domination have not been really good. <laughs> so he was instrumental in the development of particular top lines of horses in various breeds and for supporting and promoting top German riders such as Hans Gunther Winkler, who <laughs> was multiple Olympian world champion. Yeah. Colonel Pajoski was director of the school through World War II and continued in the position until his retirement in 1965. He competed again in dressage in the 1948 Olympics. Following his retirement, he continued to teach classical horsemanship and wrote nine books, including the classic Equitation, which sits on our shelf. Uh, Pajowski <laughs> died of a stroke in 1973. Huh. After funny. the communist coup in Czechoslovakia in 1948, the American operation that liberated the horses and towns eventually faded from memory until recent decades. <laughs> the stables were closed down in 1952, the barn was filled with cattle, and the horses were forgotten about. In 1991, a truck driver bought the farm and started up his stables. In 1994, an old man showed up and asked for a tour of the facility. He was reported to have been so pleased to see the facility being used for horses again. It was Dr. Lessing. <laughs> At the end of the war, the Cossacks surrendered to British troops. They were promised safety by the British, but were subsequently for forcibly transferred to the USSR. Some escaped, but the majority of those who did not went to the Gulag labor camps. The German and Cossack leadership were tried, sentenced to death, and executed in Moscow in early 1947. The remaining officers and other ranks who survived the labor camps were released after Stalin's death in the amnesty of 1953 that resulted in the end of the Gulag system. <laughs> well, what? I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. In 1963, Disney recounted the rescue of the Lipizzans by Patton and the U.S. Army in the movie Miracle of the White Stallions. So, this oh. is another movie one. I've never seen that movie, actually. No, I've never heard of it. The country of Czechoslovakia no longer exists. It is now Czechia, or Czech, Czech Republic, and Slovakia. The famed Spanish Riding School continues to operate in Vienna, offering shows of airs above the ground and high school dressage movements. It is currently undergoing a leadership crisis. It's all over Facebook. So the Czech Republic is going undergoing leadership? No, the Spanish Riding School. Oh, Spanish Riding School. Yeah, the head, <laughs> so the really head rider just got fired oh, and all this. It and turns out he wasn't Spanish. Mm, no, it seems to have to do with um, the people running it are more about business, oh, not okay. about the horses. Yeah. And so the riders and the horse people are protesting. And mm. so they just flat out like fired everyone. Yeah. Anyway, so in explaining That's, that shows a that shows a steady hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In explaining why they took the risk they did, it was stated the second cavalry put a hold on the war for two days, while we extracted a sliver of culture for the rest of the world. Reed had said we were so tired of death and destruction, we wanted to do something beautiful. <laughs> the end. Oh, it brings a tear to my eye. Oh, good. <laughs> Probably for the Cossacks. No, no, just what he said there. It's, oh, it's yeah. true. Like it just when you think of all the suffering and everything you'd wit you would witness going going across Europe, like uh, you know, it's crazy. Like mm -hmm. these, 
just to even be there by that point is, is a miracle for most of those people. Like, you know, like all the D-Day invasion and all everything else is just a, an amazing, a mess and an amazing bravery. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a good story, dear. Thank you for that. Okay. Appreciate it. Unfortunately, we don't have any comments this week. But if you'd like to leave a comment, make sure you go to sneakydragon.com where you'll find this episode and many others like it, also called Horse Mysteries. You're welcome to leave a comment there, and we will read it on the show and make comments about your comment. Not mean comments, but just, you know, we'll make we'll make conversation about your comment. That's what I mean to say. Hey, you know what? We're on iTunes. We're on other pod places. So how about leave a comment or, you know, like a review, like a, some stars. Five stars. Why not? It's easy to... Five stars. There you go. You're done. You don't have to think about it and make decisions whether it's four stars or five stars. Should I do it four stars or... Oh, I can't make up my mind. No, it's five stars. You're done. It's finished. It's so easy. So there we go. You tired? Yeah, I am. That was a long That was a long talk. That was a long talk. And I hardly contributed at all. I just sat here and listened. No, you did a lot about the war and stuff. And then I had a long horse show weekend, so... Yeah. Tiring. Yes. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go have a rest. Mm-hmm. So everyone, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Horse Mysteries. We'll be back again in two weeks with what, dear? A medical mystery. Okay. Called? The Strangling Angel of Children. The Strangling Angel of Children? Yes. Oh my gosh. What a what a cliffhanger. All right. So you'll be back in two weeks with that, everyone. Whatever it is. <laughs> strangling Children of... What was it again? Strangling, strangling Children? Strangling Angel of Children. Oh, Strangling Angel of Children. Oh my gosh. Okay. We'll be back then. I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Bye, everyone. Bye.